Welcome to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We hope the following program will challenge you and encourage you in your faith journey. When you're in a tough spot, you will end up defaulting like muscle memory to what you know is evidentially true. And so I want my kids, as I raise them, I hope that they know that this is evidentially true. And you're going you're to have a tragedy. You're going to have a tough time. And you're going to be tempted to say, where's God in this? But if you know that this worldview can stop bullets, you will stand in the gunfight. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to uh, help our kids to understand that this is not just my wishful thinking or one of many options that will make your life better. Yeah. Well, this is actually true, yeah. and it will stop bullets. That's Jim Wallace describing how our faith in Jesus Christ is like a bulletproof vest. We can trust the message of the gospel with our lives. And if you have any doubts or questions about what the Bible says, if you wonder if God is real, then this episode of Focus on the Family is for you. Stick with us. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly. And I'm John Fuller. John, I love to think about and study the early church. It's just uh, one of the hobbies, I guess you might say. Uh, The disciples and the first followers of Jesus were living in very exciting times, certainly dangerous, Mm -hmm. uh, but also full of wonder and amazement at what God was doing in their midst. And uh, they were helping spread the good news like wildfire throughout the known world of their time. And I'm profoundly challenged by that witness. You know, I ask myself this question, would I be willing to change what I have today and live their life knowing I'd be martyred? Mm -hmm. That's an interesting question to ask yourself. I hope the answer would be yes. Um, But the passion those early Christians had to willingly give up everything, including their lives, for the sake of the gospel is quite impressive. In many ways, I think they put us modern Christians to shame because of their zeal for the Lord. That's the kind of faith I want to have. And I hope everyone watching and hearing this program today feels the same way because the Lord has a purpose and a plan for each one of us. And all he needs is our willing hearts to do great things in his name in this generation. Hmm. Well, our guest today sure has a similar passion, Jim, to what you just expressed. He wants to inspire and motivate the Christian community to share our faith boldly and uh, defend the truth of the gospel. Well, I'm thrilled to feature Jay Warner Wallace, Jim Wallace, on this episode of Focus on the Family. He's a homicide detective who's been involved in law enforcement for more than 25 years. Uh, now, Jim was raised as an atheist and proud to be one at that time until he was challenged to consider the New Testament claims about Jesus. And that led him to an important journey to discover the truth, which we're going to hear more about today. And whether or not you're a Christian or have any kind of religious background, I want to challenge you to have an open mind about Jim's powerful message. It could very well change your life forever. Mm. Jim Wallace is a popular author and speaker. He's written a number of books, and the one we'll hear about today is called Cold Case Christianity, A Homicide Detective Investigates the Claims of the Gospels. We'll have details about the book and our guest when you call 800, the letter A in the word family, 800-232-6459, or stop by focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. And now here's, Jim, how you began the conversation with Jay Warner Wallace on today's Focus on the Family. Man, Jim, I'm so excited to have you here. Uh, before we get into the details of your story um, and the great content in your book, by the way, my wife 
loves your book. Oh wow, and, that's, uh, a, that's she loves that's the audio version. She's listening to it. She oh, just good. she just is really connected with the content. And I have too. Oh, well, I'm honored. And uh, but we do need uh, some definitions. That's a good thing for us to sure. do at the beginning here. Yep. So what is a cold case and how is that relevant? to your investigation of the New Testament. Well, okay, so so um, the only kind of cold case you have are cold case homicides because every other crime, uh, it closes by statute. The laws will say that, hey, if you commit a robbery and a certain number of years go by, depending on the state, that we are not uh, legally allowed to come back after you because, you know, every everyone who's been accused deserves an opportunity to defend themselves. And if so many, too many years go by, you really don't have that ability to effectively defend yourself. So the only thing that stays open by statute are murders. So what typically happens is I worked robbery homicide for a number of years in Los Angeles County, and then I started working our cold case homicides. And what you find in these red books of unsolved murders, because we have the red notebooks in our, our vault, every red notebook is an unsolved. I just took all those notebooks off the, the shelves and I looked at them and I realized is that sometimes you have a number of supplemental reports in those notebooks written by a detective years ago who interviewed a witness. But now, 35 years later, both the witness and the detective are not available to me. The witness has passed away. Maybe the detective is unavailable for any number of yeah. reasons. And so now I've got to figure out, like, what happened? Does this really happen, even though I have no access to the eyewitness anymore and no access to the report writer. Well, that's kind of what I discovered as I first looked at the Gospels when I was 35. I've got no access to the uh, eyewitnesses, no access to the report writers. How would I know if any of those Gospels are telling me anything true about Jesus? That's the same skill set I've been using for years. So I just applied it to the Gospels. And we're going to unpack that. I'm excited. That's a great summary of, uh, you know, how you got going. And I'm looking forward to the discussion. Uh, First, though, I I do want to paint that picture of where you're at uh, spiritually back then when you're Mm -hmm. pulling these red you know, files off the shelf. You kind of uh, weren't really connected with the Lord at that point, Well, and right? I didn't know any Christians growing up, except for the few people I worked with who, for the most part, couldn't answer some of the, you know, I was probably not just asking honest questions, though. I was probably, to be honest, I was really more um, aggressive, kind of... Um, well, I angry atheist, is that the word you Yeah, the Christians are just uh, silly. Um, okay. remember, they can't answer the questions that I would ask, or two, um, they were the people we were taking into jail, which is often the case. And I just thought, either they don't take this seriously or they don't, in either case, they're not living like it's true, that the Christians I met who I was taking to jail. So I, but my wife, you know, she was interested in going to church. We had at that time a six and an eight-year-old. So so it'd be she, good for the kids. Be good for the kids. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, well, I mean, my dad's kind of got a similar approach. He would have. He's not a believer, but he would have been happy to go to church because he thought it was a useful delusion. So I decided I would go the same way, just to kind of honor her. Um, and that's when I heard the pastor was a relatively ordinary looking guy. You know, <laughs> like you're sizing everything I, up I, as I a know. cop. It's well, so funny because I walk in. He was five big, foot nine, yeah. approximately 140 pounds. Exactly. He walked he, with a limp. Yeah, <laughs> and he was in this big box church. You know, it was, it was a big mega church. Uh, I'd never been in a church like this before. Uh, he came on the stage. He was just dressed like like kind of like I would be dressed, and and he said that Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived, along with a bunch of other stuff he said that day. And when he said that, that intrigued me enough huh. to want to buy a Bible. And I bought a, a little red pew Bible. Uh, I think at like a at back when we used to have a thing called a bookstore. Believe it or not, <laughs> right. there were bookstores. A Christian bookstore. Yes, I mean, so I don't even think it was a Christian bookstore. I think it was like a just a regular bookstore, but it had a a Christian section or a religion right. section, and this was a pew Bible. 
Okay. So it wasn't like a sophisticated Bible. I think it was like seven dollars, six or seven dollars. Right. And I bought that Bible and and I started to read through the Gospels just to see what's so smart about Jesus. But here's what you discover. When you read through the gospel accounts, and, and two of these are alleged eyewitnesses, right? John and Matthew. Two are allegedly writing from eyewitness sources. Luke says this in the first chapter of his gospel. And Mark, according to church tradition, he is writing the account of Peter. So I, I just thought to myself as I'm reading, well, can I just figure out what, what did Jesus say that was so smart? That's really all I want to know. But as I'm reading through there, I realize these are these are people who want me to believe that these things happened in a certain event order, a certain sequence, at a certain time in history, at a certain place on the planet. These are our alleged eyewitness accounts. And so I just decided to test them the way you would test any eyewitness account. Just describe for us a little bit of that training, what, what that looks like. Well, uh, so so a lot of this is, um, I always say it this way, if, if the game of her, for me was talking to you right now is just make sure I record everything you say. Well, that's a different one kind of a game. And that means I'm going to probably take copious notes about everything you're saying. And I'm really listening carefully and taking those notes. And I'm not really, I'm just trying to get the facts, get the facts. Mm-hmm. But if the game is spot the lie, that's a different game. Huh. And that means I'm going to assume some things, I'm going to assume pretty much everything's a lie and, until I prove it otherwise. But now I'm, I'm doing, I'm looking at other things, I'm looking at how you're saying it. I'm looking at what you're leaving out when you could have included it. I'm looking at a lot of things that will tell me where the lie is deception indicators, all that stuff. Well, it's a different game. And so a lot of what my background coming into this is that I knew how to test eyewitnesses. We test eyewitnesses based on 13 questions in the California jury instructions, right? Those 13 questions come back to four areas. Were they really there to see what they said they saw? So were they present? Two, um, can they be corroborated in some way, even though I don't, I don't expect it to be robust? It could be something very small. That's always the case in corroboration. If you told me you saw him jump the counter and, and scream at the teller, well, I could go back to the counter. If I find a palm print, that palm print would corroborate your statement, but it would tell me nothing about what he wore right. or what he said. It gives me a small fraction of your overall statement, but I am looking for fractions of corroboration. So I am looking for that. That's number two. Number three, um, is he honest and accurate over time or does he change his story? And then number four, does he have a bias that would cause him to lie to me? So those are the four criteria we look at for every eyewitness. And I thought, well, if you apply those to the gospel authors, how do they do? <laughs> that is, That's what I wanted to we're, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. There's so much to, to get to. One of the things you mentioned in the book is presuppositions that mm-hmm. initially can interfere with your search for the truth. Describe presuppositions and what you, you're kind of alluding that, I'm sure. In yeah, those. and you can't, what it comes down to is you, what I try to do is, because people always ask me, like, what are these Everyone wants to be a detective, and everyone kind of is, because we watch these shows on TV, and you do pick up some skills just from watching fiction. Uh, And you also watch a lot of, you know, datelines and other things where you're watching in true investigations. So everyone's got some sense of what we do. Uh, But one of the things we have to be careful about, and it's so foundational that it almost sounds silly saying it, is that you can't assume you know answers before you've, you know, you identify them evidentially. So you, look, most of the homicides I'm working um, the, it's sad, but true. It's the, most of them are spouse. But when you walk in and you've got a dead wife, and you could assume up front, you should be suspicious of everyone, right. but you can't assume, oh, I already know who did this. It's the spouse. And I've had cases like that. I described one in the book where Wasn't you walk in. Wasn't that a first and early case that It you was had? a pretty early case with, as, an, with as a, a homicide lead, detective. Yeah, with yeah. the lead. Oh, hom- there was a, yeah, yeah, tell us. Well, I had a guy who was 15 years senior to me who was a, the lead investigator. And I remember he was really smart and uh, gruff, 
he was honest, tell you what you did wrong. And I, but I remember that day he came in and it was a woman who was, we found her in her bedroom. She was murdered. And so right away we're, we don't know anything about her, but right away we're looking for uh, spouse relationships. Yeah, you know, suspect. it's going to be, yeah. And it turns out, and so we wasted about a week because we presupposed we knew the answer. It's good, listen, it's good to chase all the leads. Right. But we were so focused on the idea that either a boyfriend or a spouse had killed her that we missed the fact that it was a neighbor, just a neighbor, not related to her at all. You know, it's proximity, but it wasn't relational proximity. It was geographic proximity. Huh. It's almost always proximity that gets you. But one but of those two. It's one of those two. Yeah. So that's why, you know, you can't assume up front. And this is what I think happens. I mean, I made many assumptions about the Christian worldview, about the claims of the Gospels. We all do as non-believers. We make certain assumptions. Well, one of the biggest assumptions I made was just I did not believe in anything miraculous. Right. Is that naturalism? I naturalism. Think you point out in the yeah. Book. I'm just super committed. Like, you're not going to suggest. What you see is what's true. Yes. If Period. You can't, it's, if, it can't, if it's not caused by space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry, it's not caused. It's not, it's not, it's, it doesn't, not, nothing's happened. Okay. You, the listener, I mean, I know some of you are thinking, okay, that's me. Well, that's or all. Or that's of us. my spouse, or that's my friend. I mean, these are the things. This is what excites me about doing this program because, again, you come at it as a skeptic. You were an atheist. You're not predisposed to believing Jesus's truth claims. Many people listening and watching right now are in, in that same spot. Well, and this will go this way. The minute I would have said, the minute you insert um, a, a supernatural agency into any historical narrative, you're no longer doing historical narratives. You're not doing mythology because we don't, we don't, I'm not going to go to a death scene and say, I wonder if a demon caused this. We're going to go to death scenes and look for, you know, naturalistic suspects. Right. <laughs> Same thing is true. I would have said in science, you cannot insert supernaturalism into science. You're not doing science anymore, but those are presuppositions that we make philosophically. But in other words, we decide that we're not going to accept anything supernatural as a matter of personal preference is an assumption we don't have to make. We just make it. So I, when I'm reading through the Gospels, I'm like, okay, I could believe some things about Jesus, but this miracle stuff clearly can't be true. <laughs> so one of the things I had to ask myself is, okay, how do I get a universe, though, where all of the science points to a universe that came into existence from nothing? In other words, the science says that all space, time, and matter came into existence from nothing, not from another spatial environment involving time or matter. But it has to come into existence from something outside of space, time, and matter. That's just standard cosmological model. That's just Big Bang cosmology. Yeah. Well, if I believe that, that there's something extra natural, because if it's outside of space, time, and matter, it's extra natural. Yeah. So if there's something extra natural that caused the universe to come into existence, then every miracle we're reading in the New Testament is what I call a small potato miracle, right? It's not a big deal. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. Oh, hey, Mike. Got here as soon as I could. What's going on, man? Hey, I just wanted to give you an update on my marriage. Is it good news? Yeah. Our marriage is going great right now. I couldn't be happier. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. It's like a solid 5 out of 10. <laughs> Having a marriage that's just okay isn't where couples really want to live. Give yourself and your spouse an all-inclusive weekend where you'll slow your pace and focus on each other. Get more details at FocusOnTheFamily.com getaway. That's FocusOnTheFamily.com getaway. My favorite thing about Brio is that you can actually absorb stuff from it and learn. Reaching teen girls right where they're at with encouragement to grow in their faith. The stories in the Brio magazine about other people that have gone through things way worse 
than I have is really inspiring and uplifting. Help your teen invite God into her everyday experience with Brio Magazine. Learn more at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash Brio Radio. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. I would love to you to interview some of these still atheist scientists that, you know, like Dawkins or others, yeah. and put your skills to the test with them. Because typically what I've heard in debates from these people is they take you back to the bang. Right. And they say science can't really talk about what happens before that because we right. don't know. Because you, ima- so you there's imagine. there's an out clause. Yes. There's a, so, so can you imagine? <laughs> this is what I see all the time. I think there's like eight things about the universe that I think have to be explained. And one of them is just the origin of the universe, but also the fine-tuning we see in the universe, the origin of life, the appearance of design and biology, um, the consciousness, mind and consciousness, free agency. Right. A lot of atheists deny both of those things because they can't explain them. And, you know, even objective moral truths and and even a standard of righteousness by which we cause call something evil. Here's what I see uh, um, the atheist friends will do. They'll say, well, yeah, I can't. We can't explain that. We can't. But we are on the road to explaining it. In other words, someday science will explain this. Could you imagine if we said, hey, you know what? I can't explain that, but someday when I'm in front of God, God will tell me. Right. I don't think they're going to allow us that God of the gaps. You know, we can't explain it, therefore God. What they're doing is we can't explain it, therefore science. And it's the same, it's just science of the gaps. Yeah. So I think in the end, those are good places to start. And the answer, well, we don't know yet, presumes that when we finally do know, it will not involve God. Well, how do we know that? <laughs> right. right? That's the presupposition yeah. we have to avoid. Yeah. So that's why I think it is important to avoid presuppositions in yeah. any investigation, especially criminal investigations. Abductive reasoning. Let's get that definition. I'm kind of trying to lay yeah, the, the, the groundwork here so we can crack this big discussion open, but abductive reasoning. Well, that's one of the things we all do. Everyone does it. Uh, we do it in jury trials for sure. But if you've got a kid, you've been doing it as your teenager has been growing up. I'm sure you've been doing it too. It's simply where we make two lists that begin with an E. One is a list of evidence. One's a list of explanations. And we ask ourselves, which of these explanations best fits the evidence. So when your your son stumbles in the morning and, and from a late night and you ask him, uh, where were you last night? He, he's going to give you, there's several ways to explain where he was. You have to kind of figure out which of these explanations best fits the evidence before your own eyes right now. Right. All of us do it. It's a reasonable way to determine what is true evidentially. So you don't have to be like lost in the, the, the complex logic of how we're going to do this. Let's steer this back to the existence of Jesus. Uh, okay. There are many naysayers who've disputed uh, the empty tomb, as an example. Uh, they believe Jesus didn't really die or his disciples stole the body. Right. You, you start coming up with excuses to fit the evidence, That's the right. objective evidence. That's right. So how do you apply the investigative theories to that specific thing that maybe... Somebody just took Jesus out of the tomb. Well, this is why I think that abductive reasoning is a good uh, skill set to learn, and it has great value in investigating the claims of, of the gospel authors, because look at it this way. We have certain, I would have said as an atheist, I would have said, well, I'll give you certain things. I'm not a Jesus mither, right? There's these folks who will claim that Jesus never even lived. I think that's that's a silly claim. I've written about that in a couple of books, but it's a silly claim. But I would have said that Jesus lived and died on a cross, but that doesn't mean he rose from the dead. That doesn't mean anything in the New Testament is actually true. You could be a first century sage who died on a cross. But I would have given you that Jesus lived. I would have given you that, okay, he's, a, he's an ancient sage who probably was, was executed by the Romans. Fine. Uh, people certainly said they saw him afterwards. I don't 
know if that's true or not, but the claims that they said they saw him are pretty uncontroversial. Somebody said they saw the risen Christ. And finally, I would have said, well, there's an empty tomb, for example. If there wasn't an empty tomb, if you had the body of Jesus, this would be game over in the first century. Right. Well, there's like six explanations I would have tried to offer as an atheist. Either they were lying about it, or they were mistaken about it, or he didn't really die on the cross, or they were conned by somebody who pretended to be Jesus, or they never said he was rose from the grave, and that's just a, a story that developed over time. In other words, I would have said, I, I can explain that five or six ways that all point to the fact that Christianity is false. Now, there's a seventh explanation. That's the Christian explanation, that he just rose from the grave. Okay, so <laughs> right, put those on true. your list, and now go back through your list and see which of these explanations best fits the evidence. Now, here's what I always say. Every explanation for evidence has strengths and weaknesses, even the true explanation in a criminal trial. And this is true even for the Christian explanation. Yeah. It has strengths in that it explains the evidence better than any other explanation, but it has a weakness. And the weakness is that it, that it, it requires a resurrection. And I would have said, well, that's supernatural. And there's the weakness. I'm a naturalist. That can't be included. And that's why thinking deeply about the nature of the universe helped me to overcome the one and only weakness of the Christian explanation. Because from a historical perspective, it best explains all of the evidence. But its weakness is, is that it requires a resurrection. And once you're over yourself and the presupposition that nothing supernatural could ever happen, well, now suddenly this becomes the by far best explanation for the evidence. Mm. Jim, let me ask you a question. Uh, family members, let's just use that uh, proximity description. The, the, sc- the scariest. Uh, the fa- yeah, yeah, the scariest. Members, they yes. know you best. That's right. And, uh, but kind of that, you can present the evidence, you can talk about it, you could do it winsomely, you could do it at Christmas, you could do it at Thanksgiving, you could do yeah. it at whatever time of year. But you have these discussions and, you, you you know, with everything in your heart as a Christian, you want to see your family in heaven, right? Yes. And then you have that one person who is stubborn as can be, you can present all this kind of evidence, but they just, they do revolutions in denial. Yeah. I mean, no matter what you put in front of them. Oh, that would have been me. It's all silly. It's all ridiculous. I'm sorry. I don't believe it. I love you, but I just don't believe it. I think you're chasing Peter Pan. Right. Where, Where do you go with that? I mean, how do you keep in the fight? And what I mean is the right fight. Yeah. yeah, How do you keep in the spiritual battle with that loved one? And not just grow so fatigued to say, I, I Lord, I give up. Well, a couple of things. And the first thing is really simple. Like, I don't put everyone who walks in for jury duty, we don't put them all on the jury. <laughs> we have a Vordire process, right, where we pay, figure out, are, is the, are these folks qualified to sit on the jury panel? And we might go from 100 people in the room down to 12 and four alternates. So we're going to get from 100 to 16. It's jury selection. How it typically works is this. The whole room is full of people. Some are pro-prosecution. Some are pro-defense. Mm-hmm. Of those people who are pro-prosecution, pro-defense, some are so pro-prosecution, they would never, as soon as you walk in in a jumpsuit at the end of the defendant's table, they assume you're guilty. I call those ones. There are twos, they're pro-prosecution, but they're fair. There are threes, they're pro-defense and they're fair. There are fours, they're so pro-defense that if a police officer is testifying, they assume up front he's lying. Well, what we do, prosecutors and defense attorneys, we eliminate ones and fours. We want twos and threes, people who might be on one side of the issue or the other, but they're open and fair enough to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. We know you're going to be on one side or the other. Now, in your family right now, there's probably people who are divided between people who are receptive to the gospel and people who aren't. And there's a one to four spectrum. Well, we don't panel fours on juries. And we don't, I don't panel fours in these conversations either. 
the question I'm asking myself is, where is this relative of mine on the jury spectrum? Hmm. And, and there, there are ones who are so committed to Christianity, they'll say, well, you don't need to make a case to me. I, that, that's all this evidence stuff is ridiculous. I just had somebody this morning on Instagram post this. This is, I, I, I believe without any evidence, and that's true belief. And I always ask the question, well, do you have kids? Do you have students? Do you have kids in school? They're probably not ones. They're probably twos or threes. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to listen to Jim Wallace on this. They want to know what mom and dad say about this issue. So if you're a one and you think there's no, I, I'm so committed to the Christian worldview, I don't even need you to make a case for it. Are you able to make the case for your own kids? Because they need you to make the case, not me. And if you're a four, I have a strategy for fours. And I, I sure, I'm going to share something with fours, especially if I'm at Thanksgiving or at a, a birthday right. party or if I'm at Easter. You'd be I'm fun to some... bring to Thanksgiving, let me tell well, you. Well, but if, you, if you're going to ask a question, I don't believe this is, this is foolish. This is, uh, you know, this is fiction. Well, I'd ask, well, what, why do you ask good questions? Why do you be ready to answer people's questions when they approach you? But more importantly, fours, I don't, I spend a lot of time trying to make a case for fours. They're fours. But here's what I do is you pray and model Christ for fours because only God can move the four to a three. Hmm. And then you can share the gospel. Such great insights today from our guest on Focus on the Family, Jay Warner Wallace, as he describes how and why we need to be ready to share our faith with conviction, because the evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is irrefutable. John, I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew 9. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There are so many people who are blind to God's love and truth or have a distorted view of Christianity, much like Jim Wallace did. That's why we need more laborers, more committed believers who will boldly live out their faith and become powerful witnesses for the gospel. Uh, This resource, Cold Case Christianity, uh, it will equip you to do just that. And we can put a copy into your hands when you make a monthly pledge of any amount to focus on the family. That's our way of saying thanks for standing with us to support marriages, encourage parents, save preborn babies, and so much more. And if a monthly pledge is more than you can afford right now, uh, we get that. A one-time gift will also greatly help. Let's work together to strengthen today's families and share the good news of Jesus. Donate and request your copy of the book from J. Warner Wallace when you call 800, the letter A, and the word family, 800-232-6459, or stop by focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. And if you'd like more information about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we have a free booklet or download. It's called Coming Home, and it explains how you can experience God's forgiveness and reconciliation into His family forever. Contact us today to get your copy. Detective Wallace returns next time to debunk the Jesus conspiracy and describes how the truth claims of the New Testament transformed his life. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back next time as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. You're listening to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We'll take a quick break and then return with the second half of this program for your family. Stay tuned. It's time to level up. Give your kids a safe, faith-focused, and biblically-based community, and so much more. Join the Adventures in Odyssey Club. 
club members get on-demand access to the exciting Adventures in Odyssey series, including more than 900 episodes. With faith-building activities, parental controls, and a safe online community, the Adventures in Odyssey Club could be your best adventure yet. Learn more and start your free trial at adventuresinodyssey.com slash radio. So I, I just thought to myself as I'm reading, well, can I just figure out what, what did Jesus say that was so smart? That's really all I want to know. But as I'm reading <laughs> through there, I realize these are, these are people who want me to believe that these things happened in a certain event order, a certain sequence, at a certain time in history, at a certain place on the planet. These are our alleged eyewitness accounts. And so I just decided to test them the way you would test any eyewitness account. That's Jim Wallace describing how his background in law enforcement helped him uncover some amazing truths about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And best of all, the story of his investigation will inspire and challenge your faith. We'll hear more from Detective Wallace on this episode of Focus on the Family. And thanks for joining us. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. John, we heard an amazing conversation last time that I recorded with Jim, and he has some fascinating perspectives about why our beliefs in Jesus and the Bible really do matter today. As he described last time, Jim was an atheist who simply thought Christianity was another kind of mythology, probably like a crutch. Or worse, he was convinced it was an elaborate hoax that could easily be debunked by a careful examination of the facts. I I love this stuff because I think he's done such a great job of compelling a person to think a little bit outside the box about the life of Christ. However, uh, Jim's convictions were put to the test when he realized there might be more credibility to the Gospels than he imagined. Think of that, that revelation. So he began a comprehensive investigation using all of his skills as a police detective to discover the truth about Jesus. And if you missed our conversation last time, man, I want to urge you to review the previous video episode or get the audio download from our website or get our broadcast app so you can listen that way. This is a great message for you and for those you love that may not know the Lord. Mm, Yeah, and as we mentioned last time, Jim Wallace has written a book about his research and his personal faith journey. The title is Cold Case Christianity, A Homicide Detective Investigates the Claims of the Gospels. Request your copy when you call 800, the letter A, and the word family, 800-232-6459, or stop by focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. And now, Jim, here's part two of your conversation with Jay Warner Wallace on today's Focus on the Family. Let me ask you this, because one thing that I've seen for people particularly who don't want to believe in God, spend a lot of time talking about God in a negative context, right? right? So if they don't believe in God, they're the atheists, they do a lot of rebuttal to Christians about how silly we are. They, They, My point being is they engage the topic more than their predisposition would, you know, kind of implicate. You, yeah. you see what I'm saying? Well, and so me as the if atheist, I'm an atheist, why would I even talk about okay, God? Okay, so here's what but I here would I have am, said. talking here's, about God. Yes, and I sometimes just put it out this way. Uh, uh, you know, the atheist is saying that God doesn't exist and I hate him. Right. Well, it seems <laughs> okay, like a contradiction. Right. But the reality of it is, is that I was a, one of those guys and I would have said, no, it's not that I think that God doesn't exist and I hate, that would be stupid. He doesn't exist. What's there to hate? No, it's that God doesn't exist and I hate the fact that you think he does and have created a version of God 
which has created so much problem in the world, has created so many troubles in the world. That was my view. So it's that, and we talk about it a lot because we think it's problem solving. Like we can solve the world's problems, the nation's problems by simply eliminating the Christian worldview because it's the Christian worldview, if you think about it, that stands between, there's a lot of things I- Now we're talking because there's about half the country that believes that. That's right. And so because of that, they're they're actively pursuing, not because they think this is, you know, I, 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 there's no God and I hate him, but because they think there is no God. And what you've done by creating this fiction is stopping us from progress, is stopping us from becoming the kinds of people that they think we need to become. The reality of it, though, is that the Bible does describe the world the way it really is, not just the way it is historically. And that's, you know, I think that this describes the history of the first century about Jesus accurately, but it also describes human nature accurately. Look, things don't change. Right. I, I learned early on that the only three motives for murder are sex, money, and power, the pursuit of power. Well, I, I wish I would have read scripture because that's in 1 John 2. I just didn't know 1 John 2. So I had to find it the dumb way by just by doing a bunch of cases. But it turns out that our human nature is described by a book that actually captures reality the way it really is. That's, I mean, that right there is evidence, right? Yeah, I think it is. I absolutely <laughs> think it's, it's evidence. And so that's why I think we have to, but, but most of the time as an atheist, when I'm complaining about the Bible, I had never read the Bible. So I'm complaining about the one thing I know the least about. When you were that atheist, let me ask you this. You were uh, convinced that the resurrection of Jesus had to be some kind of hoax or conspiracy and that the disciples cooked it up. That's pretty common. When yes. you talk to people yes. that don't believe in Jesus, that'll be the first thing. I talked to a guy from... Uh, Princeton Divinity School that believes this, right? He's a smart guy. Yeah. But think of that. He went to Princeton Mm -hmm. Divinity and unlearned his faith. Well, okay. So we always have knowledge and wisdom are two different things, right? Right. So I can get a lot of knowledge going into school, but I may not be wise. And what made me wise about the whole conspiracy theory issues is is working a bunch of conspiracies. So anytime you have, if you're working, I work gangs for two years, anytime you have more than one suspect who commits a crime or a murder, um, then you you have what we can add a conspiracy charge. Here's what I've discovered. To have a successful conspiracy, and I think we're so, we love conspiracy theories. I mean, we are, I mean, a lot of Christians, we are- It feeds an appetite. Yes, it feeds an appetite we all have. They make great movies, make great novels. We love to talk about them as though they're true. But here's the hard truth, is that you need a certain number of things in place in order to have a successful conspiracy. And here they are, pretty simple. You need the least number of co-conspirators. It's easier for two people to do something, tell a lie, keep a secret than it is for 22. It just is. You also need to hold it for the shortest amount of time possible. It's easier to hold a lie for a day than it is for a year. So a great conspiracy is when two people commit a crime and then one immediately kills the other. Well, now we've kind of captured it, right? The first day. Yes, the first day. So so we've kept the time span short and we only have one remaining uh, perpetrator. But those are the first two things. The third thing is that you you really want um, to have good communication, excellent communication. What's the first thing we're going to do when we get five people who committed a crime? We're going to separate them and ask them deep questions because they cannot talk to each other now to line up their stories. And I'm going to go way beyond the initial story into the weeds to catch the lie, to spot the lie. Mm. You also want really super strong family or relational connections, right? And that's going to be really important. So these are the kinds of things we're looking for uh, when we see a successful conspiracy. Here's the problem with the gospel authors is there's way too many of them. It's not just the 12, right? There's 120 in the upper room in Acts 1. Remember, they picked Matthias to replace Judas, right? He was also an eyewitness who had seen Jesus from the baptism to the resurrection. They picked from a group of 120. But Paul says there were 500 who saw the living, risen Christ on the same day. 
So how large is it's just if you just told me that, oh, yeah, I believe in a conspiracy from last year involving 500 people that all lined up. Yeah, I'm going to be suspicious already. It's too many people. If it takes an entire sector of the federal government two decades to hold the conspiracy, I'm sorry. Someone's going to break. Someone's going to say something, especially if it benefits them. The other last thing is you want no pressure on these guys. So, so if there's no pressure, you can keep a conspiracy. If no one's asking questions, you can keep a secret. But if you're like being tortured for your claim, and all you have to do is just, just say it's not true, right? And we'll spare you. Well, then, then you're, you're going to see this thing break down pretty quickly. Let me ask you about that because that's true. I understand that the eyewitnesses would be different from those that believe the accounts of yes, the eyewitnesses. That's right. And I think the irony of that is those that hear the account later would be the first to say, okay, I, you know, I just heard this was what happened. Right. So I, I don't know that I believe it. But for those eyewitnesses, the yes. martyrs in yes. the case of Christ, yes. these people that are being boiled in oil, right. being crucified, Quartered, crucified upside you know, down. all the traditions yeah. of the mm-hmm. church with mm-hmm. Peter and all yep. the disciples, plus, plus, plus others, those eyewitnesses would have been the ones to say, no, no, okay, it's not true. Yes. None of them did. Yeah, so if I said to you, and you said this too, we would be willing to die for what we believe about Jesus. It would have zero evidential value because there's lots of folks who are willing to die for what they don't know is a lie. Right. But these are the folks who would know if it was a lie. That we cooked so, it all up. So their willingness to die has high evidential value. But the very next generation would have no evidential value. So I think you're right. So And I, and I think if you look at one of the claims I do see, though, Jim, I see that people will say, well, yeah, but we have very mixed traditions about the deaths. How can we even be sure that they died a martyr's death? Well, here's what I would say. We have all kinds of false claims made about Christians in the first three centuries, yet we have no counterclaims to how the eyewitnesses died, except for their martyrdom accounts. That's hmm. interesting to me, because it's not as though we're weighing claims. We have some claims that say they lived to a ripe old age, and some claims that say they died as martyrs. No, all we have are claims that say they died as martyrs. Interesting. So for me, that's a powerful... Um, Consistency. It, yeah, it is consistent. And, we, and by the way, the, the claims related to Peter's death and Paul's death are extremely well attested. So even if you say, well, I don't trust what I know about Andrew, though, okay, but you've got... These folks were willing to die for what they believe was true, as the eyewitnesses. Right. It's so true. Let's move to another common objection to reliability, and that's of the New Testament. Um, So-called witness testimony was added centuries later. So, you know, somebody had the core story, the fable, and then others built on it to make it a more secure fable. Speak to that idea that somehow this was just, uh, you know, a fairy tale that was built on over two or three or four centuries. And there are really well-known skeptics who have written books on how Jesus became God and basically argued that there's a Jesus of Nazareth. uh, That's factual. Yes, he's a preaching rabbi in the first century. And even the skeptics, many of these skeptics will say that's very well attested historically. They have no doubt that there was a Jesus of Nazareth. What they doubt, though, is that that was accurately captured. What we have today is with the first a capture of that Jesus. In other words, there might be some early document recording the life of Jesus, but all of the miracle claims, those things, the you know the virgin birth, the resurrection, these are things that were added to the story over time until the Jesus of history became the Christ of Christianity. And the argument basically is that that you know you got 300 years let's say between the the life of and ministry of Jesus and say the council of Laodicea where they decide which of these canonical books are we going to assemble into the New Testament canon? That's a long time. 
Look, there's a murder uh, show on Netflix, I think it's called The Making of a Murderer. And, and one of the claims is that some of the evidence was pulled out of property well after the crime by evil detectives and law enforcement officers who then used it in twisted it, tainted it, put the blood someplace where it shouldn't be, so that after the fact that the, the evidence was altered by a detective, and then when we go to trial 10 years later, we don't know it's been altered by the detective, and we've got bad evidence in the trial. So the same kind of claim is made. This was not part of the original case, but a, detect a detective later tampered with it, and now it's in the case. So what we do to prevent that from happening in criminal trials is we simply ask a question. Was there somebody there on the day of the, of the actual investigation who saw that piece of evidence in the crime scene, maybe even took a Polaroid, because back in the day we would take Polaroids. Right. And my dad would be the next guy up. The investigator would talk to that officer and say, what did you find? Oh, I found this. And here he would receive the evidence sometimes or receive the Polaroid, take his own Polaroid. He'd write his own reports. Now he got two reports. And then he would bring it to the crime lab. They take their own uh, photographs right there. Now we got three reports. And then I'd come pick it up years later, write my report. So now I've got picture after picture after picture and report after report after report connecting the past to the present. And each one of us who's writing a report or taking a picture, we're like a link in a chain uh -huh. that connects the past to the present. And this is why this is called the chain of custody. So in every significant piece of evidence in a criminal trial, they're going to say, well, yeah, what's the chain of custody? Like, where did it go? Is there any period of time in which we can't account for it? Right, where it was Is tainted. there a break in the chain? Because that's where it got tampered, right there. So how do you apply that to the New Testament? Okay, so we ask the question. Okay, we get, get authors who write something, our eyewitnesses. Let's say like John. We, he appears to be, he, whoever wrote John says they saw this stuff. Okay, great. So um, Hoover said, okay, you write, he wrote something. But how do I know if his Polaroid is the same thing I have today in my Bible? Well, I asked the question, who's his next officer in the chain of custody? Well, his students were Ignatius, Polycarp, and Papias. So those three students actually wrote letters to local congregations. And we have, they're not in your scripture, but they have these ancient texts. Here's what I'm looking for. Is the Jesus described by Polycarp and Papias and Ignatius less supernatural than the one I have today in John's gospel? Because then it would tell me that, hey, something changed. Got a discrepancy. Right. Who's the next link in the chain? Well, Ignatius and Papias, or Polycarp rather, had a student named Irenaeus. But we have a bunch of his documents. What does Jesus sound like in his documents? He had a student named Hippolytus. And you can do this for the uh, um, eyewitnesses over and over and over again. Peter, you can trace all the way through Tatian in history. Paul, you can trace through the North African church all the way to Eusebius. These are chains of custody. And so you can examine every link in the chain, and you can even compare the chains to each other. Because hmm. these happen in three different regions. Remember, one's happening in Asia Minor with John. One's happening in Rome with Paul. One's happening in North Africa with Peter. They're separated in the kingdom. So how do we, I mean, if they actually match, if the story about Jesus is every bit as supernatural from the very beginning in all three chains, you can have confidence that the story hasn't changed. So I actually have great confidence. Now, you can argue that, hey, I don't, I don't believe it. Okay, fine. But you can't argue, I don't believe it because the story was changed. Because right. we can actually trace the chain of custody. Because you can see the consistency. Right. The things yeah. that you're most concerned about as an atheist, did he rise from the grave? Was he born of a virgin? Did he work those miracles? You're going to be stuck with that in the very earliest accounts of Jesus. See, that's amazing. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. You know that situation your family's facing? It's okay to ask for professional help. Focus on the Family's Christian Counselors Network can confidentially point you to a trusted therapist near you. 
We've been connecting families to verified Christian counselors for more than 40 years. Find a way forward for your family at focusonthefamily.com slash get help. That's focusonthefamily.com slash get help. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. You also speak about the Gospel of Mark and how it reads as a crime broadcast. Yes. What does that mean to the novice here? Well, okay, so if you know, like I said before, we do criminal trials and jury. I always tell juries that we, I, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know, but I can't tell you everything that could be known because I can't answer every question because I'm, we're all, we try not to edit, right? We, we want to give you everything we learned evidentially. Yeah. But when you're talking to a witness, the witness always does real life, real time editing. Sure. Just happens. Now, why is it then that Mark's gospel is so much briefer than, say, Matthew or Luke? Well, it's because he's like the crime broadcast. I honestly think that if you look at this New Testament letters, you'll see that each author has a sense that Jesus is going to come back in their lifetime. Like the return of Jesus is imminent. Correct. So here we're going to write this stuff down. Well, Mark's early broadcast, it's kind of, you know, when you arrive at a crime scene, if you're the first officer there... Your job is to put out everything you can put out because other people are still in the area. They might catch this guy. What do you mean by put well, out? Well, what I mean is you get your radio out and you say, we just had a robbery at this location. The suspect description is, and you give a very brief suspect description in a blue Toyota. It's got a you know a broken rear mirror or it's got a broken right-hand mirror, some description. So that if we're out in patrolling and we go, oh, there's a guy that matches the description. There's the Toyota. It matches the description. We actually can do something. So uh-huh. the first broadcast, the first crime broadcast is got information. But trust me, once he starts taking a report, that's going to be like 10 pages. His broadcast was a paragraph. Right. But it was immediate. I needed it immediately because I need you to act right now because time is short. He might get away. Well, the same thing is kind of happening with Mark. I think he's the earliest uh, report, and he is the briefest report. I need you to act right now. Time is short. And everyone else who comes along then actually expands. Luke says that he is speaking to all the eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And the person he quotes the most is Mark's gospel. Well, it seems to me that Luke is uniquely positioned because he's commissioned to go collect all the facts and about he says the this. case. Yes. That's exactly what he yes. says. He says, so I he's have carefully like, written this. Well, I always say this whenever we're listening to words and, and I'm listening to your words, Jim, I'm always listening to the optional words, the words you didn't have to say. Well, those are adjectives and adverbs. I never need to use one. And then they tell you something. And so I'm listening to how Luke writes that report. Right. He tells us he's careful. He doesn't need to say carefully. Look, if I tell you, this is my black coffee tumbler. What did I just tell you? Color and use. I just told you I have more than one tumbler. This is the black one. Oh, okay. And the other oh, that's one, good. The other okay. one is probably a different color. Okay. So see, I can learn something from the optional word. By telling you this is my black tumbler... I didn't have to say, this is my Tumblr, but I gave you more information. Well, that's what I'm looking for in Luke's first chapter. And he says that he carefully, that's because he's comparing his to Mark, which isn't as careful. Mark was another early account. He's going to quote Mark more than any other source, but he's here to tell you, I have a lot of other stuff from the other eyewitnesses and servants of the world. He also says that he has an orderly account, and the Greek word means correct chronological order. Huh. Why do I need to use that adverb or that adjective, an orderly account? Well, because it turns out Mark's account is not in the correct chronological order. Compare Mark to Luke, you'll see some things in different orders. 
Papias, an early bishop, says Mark's account was written at the feet of Peter, and he was accurate, if not orderly. He uses the exact same Greek word, orderly. So we knew from Papias it wasn't an orderly account. Luke is telling us this in the first chapter. But that means that as early as Luke's gospel is, and I think it is early, Mark's is even earlier because yeah. he's comparing his to Mark. Let's turn the corner for the last few minutes here and just talk about how you moved from mm-hmm. being that atheist to that first whiff of becoming a three back yes. to that discussion. I mean, talk about your progression from four, mm-hmm. the hardcore angry atheist, to the three, maybe so, heart is open, I hope there's a God, but I'm not sure, to the two, I'm a Christian, but I have some questions, yes. to and the one, I'm yes. sold out. Yeah, I think that, well, first of all, I, I read C.S. Lewis um, at some point in the first year of investigating this, and Lewis said something about, I think it was mere Christianity, but I, was, I think this was from God on the Dock, and I remember him saying, um, roughly, that if Christianity is not true, it's of no importance. So stop, you know, why, why should we go to church anymore? It's of no importance if it's not true. If it is true, though, it's of critical importance, the most important thing you'll ever, ever, ever know. What it can't be, though, he would argue, and I think he's right, is it cannot be moderately important. It's either of no importance or of critical importance. And Absolutely. so I knew this, right? Once I got into it, I realized, okay, if this is true. So I spent about a year just investigating the claims of the Gospels to see if what they were saying about Jesus was true. And I simply used a lot of first century sources, a lot of the history of the early church, a lot of the history of the first century of that region, to see if I could corroborate some of these claims, to see if they had changed over time, how early were the claims. And then at some point, I got to a point where I told Susie, I said, you know, I think I believe what it's telling me about Jesus. And I don't know that we really even knew what that meant yet. And she said to me, well, and I said, but I have a question, and maybe you can help me with this because she's on the same journey with me. I still don't get why you would have to die on a cross, though. Huh. Like, why would this have to be the plan of salvation? So I was already at a point where I was willing to accept the, the reliability of the Gospels, yet I still didn't understand the Gospel. Right, the core. And at that point, I started to read the Scriptures, not for what they said about Jesus, because I'd already done that work. And I trusted him for that. I needed to know. That belief was there. Yeah, so I had belief that. Now you had to move to the next I had to move to belief in. Yeah. And that was, I started reading the scriptures to see what they said about me. And I think that's okay. My journey in was different than others. And if you're a skeptic who's listening to this and you think, no, I got to think my way in. Well, welcome. Well, that, and that hits the pride factor as the created being that we've got to say we are sinners. I am a sinner. That's right. Saved by grace. Not my grace. Yes, that's right. By the Lord's grace. And here's how I look at it. Look, in the end, um, all crime is created by some subset of pride that drives us to either pursue money, sex, or the pursuit of power. That's a pride issue. I want this. I want this desire. I want me, 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 me. It turns out that pride, that kind of selfish self-focus, is not just the, the motive for every murder and every crime. Everything you think is wrong with the world in our country, you could go back and say, well, it's really grounded in this problem, a pride problem. Well, there's the opposite of pride is another word that no one wants to talk about. It's humility. Right. So it turns out that every problem you think you see, the solution is humility. It, it, this is why the gospel, I always say, it's gospel is a cure for every kind of stupid you can think about. Huh. Jim, I mean, we're right down to it. You've done a fantastic job describing the journey that God's had, that God has had you on. I mean, right from, he had his hand on you when you were an atheist. That's right. I mean, this idea that God knows you before you know him. That's right. And he's drawing you and drawing you. And that's everyone. And even for the person that would put his fist up to God because they lost a wife, they lost a child, whatever tragedy they had in their family. 
That's usually the first response. God, yeah. why would you do this to That's me? Right. And I think at the end here, the right question is for that person particularly who has that bitterness. What do you say in everything that you've discovered? I always say that I'm not a Christian because it works for me, because it doesn't work for me. Honestly, if you're like, especially if you're a young person right now, this is the thing that's not going to make you popular. You're not going to be the most popular kid in your school if you're a Christian, probably. And I wasn't trying to solve a problem. I didn't have a, a train wreck marriage. I didn't have any of the things that most times will drive you to your knees. I didn't have any of that. I had a great life. So I'm a Christian because it's true. And even though it doesn't always work for me, from a convenience sake, it is true. I'd much rather be an inconvenient truth than an inconvenient lie. It is evidentially true. Hmm. So you can pretend like it's not and live your whole life like, but you're going to be living in a lie. And how comfortable is anyone living in a lie? We've created this worldview for ourselves. We want to deny that God exists. Okay. But it is true. Just know that you're living in this fabrication you've created. I don't think many of us feel comfortable doing that. And they see us as the Christians who are living in the lie. Well, okay, that's why I wanted to look at the evidence. Because once I knew it was true evidentially, I realized there wasn't a lot of choice. There are days when it's it's hard. It's harder. If you ask Susie, the 18 years before we came, became Christians was a lot easier than the 26 since we've been Christians. <laughs> That's it's a lot easier. Why? Because it's easy to throw the dart against the wall. Just go draw the bullseye around wherever the dart lands. Now we're not doing that. Now there's a bullseye before we start. I can a never. Standard. I can never hit it. Yeah. And that's a, a much diff- more that's difficult. Good. But it's a life worth living. We hope you've enjoyed this two-part conversation with Jay Warner Wallace about the powerful truths of the gospel message and how each one of us can become effective witnesses for Christ. If today's program has raised any questions about your own relationship with God or what it means to be a Christian, I urge you to contact us. We have a free booklet. You can download it or we can send it to you. It's called Coming Home. It offers a simple overview of why Jesus came to die and sacrifice himself for mankind and how a personal relationship with him will transform your life forever. We can also send you a copy of Jay Warner's book, Cold Case Christianity, when you make a gift of any amount to Focus on the Family today. Just call 800, the letter A in the word family, 800-232-6459 or make that contribution at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. And I want to encourage everyone who's listening and viewing this program today to consider a monthly pledge to Focus on the Family. Every year, hundreds of thousands of people contact us for help. Uh, They may be facing a crisis in their marriage or simply wanting to be better moms and dads for their kids. Others are looking for discipleship tools to grow in their faith. When you commit to a monthly gift, uh, you help stabilize our budget so that we have the necessary staff and resources in place to meet the needs of these families. So a monthly pledge is a great way to partner with us in ministry. A one-time gift is also very helpful, obviously, and we're counting on your support today. We'd love to hear from you. And once again, our number is 800, the letter A and the word family, 800-232-6459 or stop by FocusOnTheFamily.com slash broadcast. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. Christ.